Hello, you're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. The church is located at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. Thank you for joining us today as Dr. Pollock opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Let's take our Bibles again tonight and turn to Jonah chapter 2 once more. Jonah 2 verse 7, the Word of God says, When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came in unto thee, into thine holy temple. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Well, while the story is well known, let me remind you of the story thus far. God comes to Jonah and says, Go to Nineveh and cry against it. But rather than going to Nineveh, Jonah goes to Joppa on his way, seeking to get to Tarshish. And he goes down to the bottom of the ship. And in the bottom of the ship, he's cast out, of course, when the storm comes. And he goes down to the bottom of the sea. Of course, all this comes in the context of prayer. It is a neglect of prayer in chapter 1 that stands in the contrast to the prayer of chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God. When the people of God neglect to pray, there's always consequences. But Jonah, by God's grace, has not lost his life. God has been pleased to preserve his life and allowed Jonah to come to his senses in the fish's belly and praying unto the Lord his God. And in this place we see the testimony of a rebel, a backslider. And yes, a child of God, but one who has for a season sought to go in his own direction. The testimony is that it is futile for the child of God to flee from God. That's a warning. It's also a comfort. Rebellion against the Lord, so would say Jonah, is the path of ruin. But having come to his senses in the state of fainting, verse number 7, he then is recovered by the grace of God. We might say he's saved by God's grace. He's delivered from his folly by God's grace. And he is, as a result of that, submissive to God's will. I will sacrifice with the voice of thanksgiving, and I will pay that that I have vowed. So we're seeing Jonah reflecting upon his condition, reflecting upon the mercy of God, and then coming to this point where he says in his prayer, verse number 9, salvation is of the Lord. So much in these five words. Again, whoever was responsible for the architecture in this building felt they were of significant importance that they placed behind the pulpit. And there's so much contained in those simple words. But I want to look at it particularly as it sits in the context here of Jonah chapter 2. So one of these clauses, salvation is off the Lord, that you could, you could lift out of Jonah and sit into Romans or Ephesians or somewhere else. And yes, we will see parallels in these books, but what does it have to do here in Jonah chapter 2? 
But there are two things I want to highlight uh, to you tonight. First of all, I want you to see here that in this declaration, Jonah is recognizing God's supremacy. That's what this is all about. He's come to recognize the supremacy of God. And as he does so, he then responds, secondly, to God's supremacy. We'll spend most of our time on the first of these two points tonight. So first of all, Jonah recognizes God's supremacy. He comes to the recognition, ultimately, that only the Lord can save. That is what I think he's saying here at the end of verse number 9. Salvation is of the Lord. He's saying only Jehovah, Lord, capital L-O-R-D, only Jehovah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, only Jehovah can save. And I say that because there's a contrast with verse number 8. Where he says, they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice unto thee. Salvation is of the Lord. And it is that contrast that I think causes us to see that Jonah is here recognizing the supremacy of the Lord. To observe lying vanities is in contrast to true saving religion of verse number 9. Verse number 9 is saving religion. Verse number 8 is futile idolatry. To observe in verse 8 is to pay heed to or to keep. It is it's a very, very common word in the Old Testament in its original form. It has at times the use with respect to true religion even walking with the Lord. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, for example, it says, And it shall be our righteousness if we observe to do all these commandments before the Lord our God, if we keep all these commandments. And so the thought here is certainly, I believe, of a religious practice. Observing lying vanities. Observing in terms of keeping these things, paying heed to these things. But what are lying vanities? Well, there's a play on words. Actually, in the original, it has the sense of vain vanities. But vain in the sense that they're empty, there's no foundation. Hence, the translation here, they are lying vanities. They're deceptive vanities. They are things that, that appear to be beneficial, but they are not beneficial. They are empty. They're void of true fruitfulness. Same concept, of course, in Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities. All that this world offers is vanity. And so men pursue all manner of false gods. It may not be the false gods of the mariners, but it's all manner of false gods because ultimately any other idol is a false god. And that idol may take to itself personality. It may be a statue with a face and a mouth and a nose. It may be a, a figment of a man's imagination. They believe in a spiritual false god, but again, a god that hears them and responds to them. But of course, the gods of this world are all lying, vain, deceiving vanities. And those who follow false religion, whatever the form of that religion is, they are said to forsake their own mercy. The word mercy there is the word, again, this Hebrew word has said, the loving kindness of God, God's covenantal faithfulness. So what verse 8 is saying is that any other pursuit rather than the true God 
is for a man to forsake the opportunity to know mercy. It's a complex structure there. When it says forsake their mercy, it has the sense of them forsaking the opportunity for them personally to come to enjoy mercy. And isn't that what is true when it comes to the ungodly? They pursue a lie. They, they know the power of God, His eternal God. He had Romans chapter 1. But they suppress the truth of God in a lie. They worship the creature rather than the Creator. And in so doing, they're cut off from God. They exclude themselves from the mercy of God because God's mercy is only found in Jehovah. And so the contrast, verse 8 and verse 9, then leads Jonah to say this, salvation is off the Lord and only off the Lord. No salvation anywhere else but in Jehovah. And of course, in the language of the New Testament, there's no other name given amongst men whereby we must be saved. Salvation only in Jehovah Jesus. Only in the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so that's what I think gives the sense of the meaning in verse number 9. It's not, a, it's not a random phrase just plucked out of nowhere and put into the prayer. It's a phrase, a clause that comes in the context of the wider prayer. Salvation is of the Lord in contrast to all false religions. So what he's saying here basically is that Jehovah alone is the one true and living God. There are no other gods but Jehovah. And as such, Jehovah plans, wills, and acts in the area of man's redemption. Jehovah is not like the idols. Again, you turn back to the Psalm 115 and you see the language of the psalmist there. Um, when the psalmist compares Jehovah to the idols, he does so in terms of Jehovah's ability to do certain things. And I think that's what Jonah's getting at here. The lying, the, the vain idols, they cannot actually do anything. Only Jehovah has the ability to save. And so you've got the language, Psalm 115, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory, for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. Note verse 1, Lord, L-O-R-D, in capitals again, it is this word Jehovah. And then you've got on down through the, the passage there. Wherefore should the heathen then say, Where is now their God? But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. The idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. And here you get this contrast. They've mouths, but speak not. Eyes see not, ears hear not, noses smell not, hands handle not, feet walk not, neither speak they through their throats. But that is not Jehovah. Jehovah, if you go on down through the psalm, take 12, for example, the Lord hath been mindful of us. He will bless us. Our God is active and able, a living God, not a God of our imagination, but a God of supernatural revelation, showing himself in creation, and in the Scriptures, showing himself a God strong and able to do wonders in this world. And so it's obviously the case, we can say with Jonah, salvation is only of the Lord. Nowhere else to find salvation. And so as you consider that with me tonight, please note, first of all, that in wisdom, Jehovah plans salvation. It is, of course, the triune God that determines the plan of redemption. 
Let me just show you one example of this. It is, of course, John chapter 6. You turn to John chapter 6, and you see language in John 6 that gives the concept of the triune God planning the work of redemption. Now, at least in John 6, you see the work of the Father and the Son. Christ says in John 6, 37, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Describing, again, this work of the Father, giving the Son a people. And the Son's task is to willingly do the will of the Father. Verse 38, I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. All of this language, again, is presupposing a prior plan of redemption. And whilst John 6 does not give us a time scale, we know from elsewhere in the Word of God that the time scale is before time itself. That the Father and the Son and the Spirit, as the three persons, the triune God, they come together and they determine, they plan, they will redemption of lost souls. Planning is not possible for an idol. Planning involves the function of the will. Planning immediately proves the living nature of our God, who gives due consideration of what is right and just to be the ground of redemption. That in the eternal counsel of God, there is consideration. How can I be just and the justifier of those that come unto me by Christ? And so you see again in this counsel of eternity before time began, there is a planning of the triune God, whereby the Son is determined to be the Savior. And the Spirit determined to be the applier of that salvation. You see, mercy is to be shown. Again, I've shown you already in Jonah chapter 2 that this word salvation comes in the context of men forsaking the opportunity to know the mercy of God. You see, Jehovah alone has the right and the authority as lawgiver to determine to accept the sacrifice of a substitute and pardon the guilty. And you've got to let that one sink into your mind. For Christ to die for us, and for that death to be suitable to be the ground of our salvation, it first requires that the triune God determine as the lawgiver that they are willing to accept sacrifice of a substitute in order to pardon the guilty. <coughs> That has to be determined before time began. The Father willing to accept the sacrifice of the Son, a just sacrifice, so that we can be forgiven and properly forgiven. You see, in this wisdom that plans salvation, we see the wisdom of God certainly in the method of salvation, the coming of Christ Jesus, but we also see the authority of God in this planning the authority that is the right to save or not to save. You see, turn across to Romans chapter 9. And you'll know, of course, in Romans chapter 9, we have the, the challenging account regarding God's sovereignty when it comes to salvation. Again, coming from the argument, Jacob, I love, but Esau, I hated, then verse number 19. 
Then thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? But nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say in the form it? Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath, fitted to destruction, that he may make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory? This is the sovereign right of God's. God alone has this right. And yes, we look at that in terms of the negative. But of course, that right is established, verse number 15, when he speaks to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Jonah's saying, false idols, you forsake mercy. But God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. This is the sovereign right of God. And of course, that is so relevant to Jonah. He has no right to object if God chooses to show mercy on the Ninevites. And we have no right to object if God chooses to show his mercy. And you can fill in the blanks after that. Any soul that we may think don't deserve the mercy of God. We may think to yourself, well, they're far, they're too far gone. They're too sinful. They've, they've, they've turned too far away from the grace of God. We have no right to declare that. God is able in his own sovereign purpose and will to choose who he chooses to save. And so you see this, don't you? Salvation's of the Lord in terms of the wisdom whereby he plans salvation. But it's also true, secondly, in the truth whereby he promises salvation. I, I could turn to so many of the covenantal passages. You think of Jeremiah 31, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And in that covenant, he promises to remember our sins and iniquities no more. But it comes with the authority of God, I will. No idol can say, I will save or I will forgive. No idol can make a promise and keep that promise. Jehovah alone is able to make promises that will certainly be kept. This is wonderful. There's nothing unknown to Jehovah that may thwart his plans. We can make plans and promises, but we don't know the future. We don't know tomorrow. We may promise to do something on Saturday, and we may not see Saturday. We are hindered in that regard, but not God's. There's nothing unknown to God. There's nothing greater, greater than God to hinder him keeping his promises. Ultimately, he is the only one who can truly say, I will. And that carry absolute certainty. Salvation is off the Lord. It's also, of course, off the Lord in terms of the power whereby he accomplishes salvation. Again, you think of what we saw in Isaiah 53. The arm of the Lord is revealed in the gospel. His arm is made bare to the nations. That arm that is shown in power in the virgin birth of Christ as the Holy Ghost overshadows Mary. Or the power of God shown in the power of the Spirit upon Christ. Or the power of God shown in the resurrection. 
Only the almighty living God can work wondrously and provide all that's needed to save. He alone can will salvation. He alone can promise salvation. And he alone can accomplish salvation. No one else can do the work of salvation but our God's. No idol. And so you see the power of God working through human history. And you say, Jonah, you were right all along. Salvation is indeed of the Lord. Also, this is true in the grace whereby he applies salvation. The promises of the Old Testament are that God will give us a new heart, a new heart also will I give you. No idol can change the heart of the sinner. The leopard can't change their spots, the Ethiopian their skin, but God can change the heart of the hardest sinner. He alone can do that internal spiritual work. You see, if we're saved, if salvation is off the Lord and we're saved by faith, it's only God alone who can work in our hearts and turn us away from rebels to believers, from those who observing lying, lying vanities forsake our own mercy, to those who fall on our face before Jehovah and say, have mercy upon me, a sinner. It's only God that changes that heart. And so we say, absolutely, salvation is off the Lord. He alone can plan, promise, accomplish, and apply salvation. And he alone can resurrect the dead body of a man and bring them ultimately to that resurrected state of living with God forever in a glorified humanity. Salvation is off the Lord. And so as Jonah recognizes that, He's come to the end of himself. He's come to realize the futility of wrestling and arguing with God. He recognizes God's absolute supremacy. And if you've never come to that point of realization, you're worse off than Jonah. And you're still in your sin. You see, recognizing God's supremacy is not an additional level of Christian maturity. Understanding it, yes, may develop with Christian maturity. But coming to the recognition that God alone can save is necessary at the very foundation of Christian testimony. If this is not your conviction, then you are not a believer. Because to believe the gospel is to believe what it says behind my shoulder. To believe the gospel is to believe that salvation is off the Lord. But secondly, Jonah then responds to that. He comes to recognize God's supremacy, but secondly, he does also respond to it. You see what he says, verse number nine, but I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. Thanksgiving and vows coming together in this verse as they do elsewhere. You see, there is no other response that is appropriate to the realization of God's work and salvation. Thanksgiving. Have you given thanks to God today? Seriously. Did you begin this day with a word of thanksgiving that God had saved you and caused you to rise for another day? It is the only proper response to a recognition that salvation is off the Lord. 
Oh, that man would praise the Lord for his goodness, for his wonderful works to the children of men, and let them sacrifice the sacrifice of thanksgiving and declare his works with rejoicing. Psalm 107. Thanksgiving. But turn back to the Psalm 50, please. The Psalm 50, and let me show you again a couple of the Psalms. And I mentioned last time that these, this prayer of Jonah in chapter 2 is so closely linked with the Psalms. He's praying, he's praying Psalm-like language. And you'll see there Psalm 107, or sorry, Psalm 50 in the verse number 14. Psalm 50 verse 14. Offer unto God thanksgiving, and pay thy vows unto the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. Uh, is it not possible that Jonah has these words in his mind as in the fish's belly? What he says here, call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver thee. And he does that, and his response is then to offer unto God thanksgiving and to pay his vows. Or you take the Psalm 116. Again, you see a connection here, Psalm 116. And the verse number 12. What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits towards me? I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows unto the Lord now in the presence of all his people. Verse 17. I will offer to thee the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. You see, those who come to grasp theologically the supremacy of God in salvation are those who inevitably will have this response, a response of heartfelt thankfulness that will bubble up out of their soul, that they cannot stop giving thanks unto God for the recognition that they are what they are only by the grace of God's. And they'll praise God for his mercy. And as such, they will then come and they will offer their vows of service unto the Lord. They will pay that they vow. I'm not sure exactly what Jonah vows here. It may well be to obey the Lord and, and go to Nineveh. That may well be part of what's involved here. But of course, in New Testament language, Paul will say to us tonight, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. That is the response to the gospel that must come from our souls, a willingness to give ourselves on the altar for God. Whatever the Lord calls us to do, whatever our vocation may be, that we do it as unto the Lord for his glory, as those who testify salvation is of the Lord. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania, at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. We preach Christ crucified.